Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Katie, and welcome to 360 View. This is where we explore a broad range of ideas on all things affecting your body, your wellness, and your mind. Today we have the pleasure of chatting to Meg Clary. So Meg is a level two accredited counsellor who has spent the last 20 years studying in order to be able to offer counselling services to people from all walks of life. Meg offers a rare insight into generational patterns, mental wellness, raising little people and doing your own work. Meg isn't about telling you how to fix your life, but more about assisting you in finding the strengths and resources that you already have and then working with you to understand yourself in a more in-depth way. Our chat with Meg flowed through many different areas and her simplicity for complex topics was dumbfounding in every sense of the word. This is part one where we took a deep dive on mental wellness. Join in for part two where we look more at the holistic person, parenting and doing the work. We hope you enjoy. <laughs> um, so no, Meg, to start off, how did you get into counselling? Like how did you get into this role? Obviously, you've just branched into your own business and your own side of this. So how, how did it all start? Um, it was an accident. And I know that that sounds really, really crazy. But about ooh, 21 years ago, I decided I wanted to go to uni and go back to uni and actually finish something and I was going to be a lawyer oh wow and the the uni would not let me enroll straight in law so I enrolled in an arts degree randomly picked a bunch of subjects uh I did sociology psychology and political science of all things and I loved psych and political science and I hated sociology (laughs) then I started the law degree and I detested it so I dropped that and finished finished my psych major and then I was using that I worked in corrections for about four years and then I worked with child safety for nearly four years and while I was working in child safety I worked out how much I liked working with the families and actually helping them set and meet goals to improve their lives so I enrolled in a diploma of counseling and kind of jumped across from there. So, yeah, it was a complete accident. This was not where I was ending up. No, definitely not. But then how did you get, um, so obviously finishing your degree, what was your first entrance into the field? Where did you start? So I started when I finished my degree. Oh, sorry. Yes, no. When I finished my degree, I originally started out in employment services because one of my passions is career development and helping young people identify, you know, what they're good at as well as where they might want to go in the future because I think we've got a long way to go in Australia and helping our young people, you know, map out careers that suit their strengths and abilities. Uh, So I was working in employment services and switched over to probation and parole after about 12 months because I'd completed my degree and then I was doing a lot more case management type stuff. So I was working with a lot of people that had had traumatic childhoods, that had drug and alcohol problems, um, men who were, you know, living domestically violent lives where they assaulted their partners and children and working with people who were the product of much family trauma. Um, Mm. And then after a while I worked out that I couldn't, I felt like I could do a lot more if I started working with the families that these broken people came from So that's what prompted my shift into child safety. And then I actually got tired 
after was it, eight years of working with people that were seeing people because they had to to tick boxes to keep a government department happy. And yeah. that's when I switched over to the school counselling. So, so, yeah. so obviously then for you to, to branch into trying to capture those people sort of at the start of their journey, like you said, yeah. is trying to really go down the road of helping either um, adolescents or children um, yep. sort of get out or break that cycle um, to get into a better place or try and see that there's a better way to go? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of the work that I do now with the school kids is around shoring up their capacities, their abilities and their beliefs in themselves because often you can't change the environment that they're coming from. So in some cases we can and the parents are really, really good about taking on recommendations and engaging and doing that, but we still have that element of, hey, my kid's broken, can you fix them? So they're waiting for you to deliver the end product of them being fixed. Correct. And and in the same way that, you know, these tend to be like the families where nobody takes responsibility for what happens in the home and the kids then don't take responsibility for their actions at school. Those are really sticky um, habits that can be difficult to break. So it's about working with the kids to identify when they are responsible for what they do. So there's a lot of really basic sort of training around, hey, when something happens to you at school and someone hurts your feelings or, you know, a kid calls you a name, you get to choose how you respond to that. And and so it's just going through that really basic stuff a lot of the time. Hmm. And then, and that's more the primary stuff. Nice. And so is that something then when obviously you're jumping to the beginning, so you're doing more adolescent or younger people, is that yep. when, is that something done in a, a setting of like family involved with you speaking to the child or speaking to the, the person that obviously is the main concern or is it done as a individualized sort of young person's uh, chat and then set aside with sort of steps for the adults or the parents? by themselves or is it done as trying to get them all together in the same room it's so we don't tend to do family counseling at school so we have some families that we will Hmm. um but it tends to be on a case-by-case basis dependent on what the child's presenting with certainly with our, our primary school kids the parents are usually really involved they want to know how the kid's going they want to know what they can do to support it so if we're implementing like behavioral management techniques at school we'll get we'll try and get home to replicate it um, interestingly a lot of the teenagers they don't want mum and dad to know that they're getting help they mm. they don't like to there's an element of I don't want to add to the stress that's already in the household. Mum and dad already have enough worries. They don't need to be worrying about me as well. Um, wow. So part of that is working with the kids to be able to go, hey, so parents worry about you whether you say anything or not, and you need to know that they're probably already aware that you're not doing okay. So it's moving them to a place where they're willing to bring mum and dad into that. And do you also think that that happens? Obviously, the kid is struggling with either their mental health 
or something like that or um, with situational stuff going on, do you think that they think that their parents have never struggled with it? Because often it's not an open Definitely. conversation. Definitely. But what I also see a lot of is a lot of invalidation of feelings. And, and I think as a society, Katie, we're quite guilty of this in that if a child is crying, we often, you know, like I can remember being told to me, what are you crying for? You shouldn't be that upset or, you know, or, or the, the age old, you want to cry, I'll give you something to cry for sort of thing. Yeah. So hmm. we, we, inadvertently have these conversations with our children where we tell them no that's not how you're supposed to feel you're supposed to be feeling this way so it teaches kids to not trust their own feelings and they then become completely incapable of expressing them yeah so instead because, of yeah go on so, so because if they're sad and they cry they're told what are you you know they're asked what are you crying for they don't have the words to go, oh, I'm feeling really hurt because my friend Billy said this thing to me three days ago and it's just kind of hit me. They go, I don't know. And the parents go, well, stop that. You've got no reason to cry, which means there's no open communication to be able to work out what is it exactly that's making this kid upset or making that, them angry. Yeah, and, and I think in some cases the, the biggest thing is we've tied together is usually crying with a physical like a physical pain, mm. you know, so something we've always seen as we've tripped over, usually you'll always see children, and I talked to Katie about that the other day, is is we're looking for someone. So if I've, a child has fallen over and yep. suddenly they turn around, usually you'll see them fall over, suddenly they're up and they'll look at everyone to see what reaction is going on. Yep. And then all of a sudden, if everyone races over, oh my goodness, are you okay? You know, this is a, well, well suddenly this means, yeah, suddenly this means there's obviously something wrong. This is really yep. bad. Whatever I've done or whatever I've been involved in is not good. No one likes this yep. or this is no good. The reaction I've got is really overexcited or mm. really I've gotten a lot of things happening towards me, like a lot of people doing inputs now to what I'm doing. Whereas yep. if everyone's turned around and gone, okay, you're all good. And left Let's it as that. Well, suddenly I'm. Yeah. Oh, it mustn't be too bad. So I'm get up, and I move on. And and the flip, what goes with that, Ben, is that you know, like if I say to you, tell me whether a feeling is good or bad, and I say, okay, well, tell me what it, does society perceive anger as a good feeling or a bad feeling? It's always bad mm. immediately. Yeah. You shouldn't be angry. You should never feel that. It's wrong. That's exactly it, Katie. So we, there's actually, um, Russ Harris tells it beautifully in acceptance and commitment therapy. So there's essentially nine overarching feelings that most of the professionals can agree on. And I'm going to be stretching myself if I can remember them all without looking them up. But of the nine, six of them would be deemed as bad feelings. So fear, shock, sadness, disgust. I'm trying to think what the others are. There's two more that fall into that bad category. And then you've got love, contentment and, and happiness, which are all good feelings. But, but feelings are just feelings. Like they don't have to have an inherent value associated with them because as people, if we think that something is bad, e.g. breaking the law is bad, we try and avoid doing it. But a lot of human pain gets tied up in trying to avoid bad feelings. So, so if we've been taught that it's not okay to be angry, um, you know, you got in trouble for it when you're little, or 
the classic boys don't cry. Hmm. So for a man who feels emotional pain, because we're human and we all feel emotional pain, but he's got no way to express it because crying's not okay, then it can get bottled up and a lot of the time they'll explode in a rage because rage is perfectly acceptable for men but sadness isn't in the same way that rage is not acceptable for women but sadness is. So you usually find that sad men get angry and angry women cry because those are acceptable responses for the gender. Mm. And so a lot of this is socialization and training that's pretty huge so then there's no shift no so then do you think that's why um mental health has such a big stigma and why people aren't meant to talk about any of these things is because they're all seen as negative emotions absolutely because a lot of where poor mental health stems from if you take And so, like, for me, I take a very holistic view of mental health. It's it's not just what's going on in my brain at the moment. Like, you guys know as well as anybody else um, that exercise is one of the most important parts of a healthy mind and body. Mm. And, And it's not because, you know, doing exercise means you look fabulous and you feel better about yourself. It's about those chemical responses that your brain has to the exercise. So if I've got poor mental health and there's a, you know, I'm not exercising and I'm sleeping, like I can't sleep and then I oversleep and I'm not eating well and I've withdrawn and I'm not spending time with my family and I've cut off all those things that we need for good mental wellness, then I'm not going to talk to anybody about it either because I'm clearly weak and pathetic if I have a problem with my brain. Hmm. But if I broke my leg and I couldn't get out of bed and I needed help, I'm not going to hesitate to ask somebody because, you know, we know that a broken leg requires all this stuff Hmm. and we're okay with that. Hmm. But because you can't see a a broken brain, that that makes it quite tricky to, to go, well, what do you need from me? And because everyone's mental wellness is impacted differently by different events. You know, two people can go through exactly the same experience from an outside perspective and respond to it so incredibly differently. I just noticed there, Maggie, interchange two different terms, mental health and mental wellness. Hmm. Where What's the difference between, like, does everyone have that? Um, So I suppose mental wellness has come... It probably, I would say over the last 10 years, we've moved to the term mental wellness because when I say mental health, there's some very negative connotations associated with it. So when you think about the units that are associated with health departments and psychiatric wards and things like that, they're all called mental health wards. Mm. And obviously, if you're in one of those wards or dealing with one of those departments, your mental health is anything but healthy so there's been a shift towards using the term mental wellness as a more positive approach because of the societal connotations that go with mental health as a negative thing so when someone says i'm having a mental health episode they're not doing well they're doing poorly 
So mental wellness in sort of gives you an idea that we're doing better. So when we're working towards good mental wellness, we're looking after all those facets of being healthy in a whole whole body experience of body, mind, and soul. And I suppose in that case, most people want to put it in a box and put it in a a section. So if someone ends up saying mental health, well, I know that's pretty much someone's not doing the best. They need to be in hospital. They need to be seen by people or someone needs to be with them all the time. They need to be in either the straitjacket or the padded room so that they're not hurting themselves and no one else. And they need to be put away and we can say, well, that person's getting looked after in a mental health facility. And that's also something we've heard a lot is that person has Mm. mental health issues. Yeah. Yeah. And often it's not even followed up with issues. It's just that person has mental health. When in reality, like you're saying, everyone has mental health. Well, we all have. Yeah, we all have mental health. And and in the same way that you can have great blood pressure or crap blood pressure or, you know, it depends on the mood I'm in blood pressure, Mm. your mental wellness is impacted by what's going on around you in the same way, you know. Like how many people get up on a dismal day and go, ooh, it's a stay in bed and watch DVDs and wallow in self-pity kind of day. And that's fine because, you know, the weather's down. But if you just wake up and you're having a bad day, that's not okay, but you can't have a good day every day. It's impossible. Mm. It's an absolute fallacy that you should be happy all the time. It's completely unachievable. And then do you see in some cases, that's a quite interesting thing, do you see in some cases some people end up going so much one way, so so oversold on how good their day is? You know, when you talk to people, you end up saying, "Uh, how's your day? And every time they're selling it as a massive win or my day is always being seen as I need to be cheery and bright and cheery all the time. Because I need to persuade myself it is that way. I'm selling it. Yes. So I have, no, Sarah, I should say, not so much with the children that I work with and the teenagers, but, you know, as we know, all teenagers are depressed, right? Isn't that what they say? Yes. Um, They're not, but... um, I do have cases where I've got teenagers who are really not coping, but they feel that they can't admit that they're not coping. They need to put this front on Mm. to convince everybody that they're okay. And those ones, they tend to be over the top. Mm. Yes. And when you say to them, hang on, you've actually been through quite a lot. I would expect you to not present like this. That's usually when you crack them and they just burst into tears and go, actually, no, I'm falling apart. My life sucks. Yeah. I'm like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. So then what is normal fluctuation in emotion? Like what emotions are normal? What are we meant to go through? And when do we know when we need help versus when we're just being human? Um, Most of the time we are just being human. So if you have a bad day, like you wake up and you're just feeling meh, Oh, God, I love that. That word did not exist when I was a teenager and I so needed meth. <laughs> so, you know, you wake up and you're like, you know what, I just don't feel like doing this today. But mm. you still do it and it'll be a good day or a bad day. It'll be up and down. It's probably a bit flatter than normal. You'll have things that you still laugh at. You'll have times where you're just like, oh, make it all stop. But the normal flow for emotions is fleeting. It's like thoughts in your head. You know, when we go from, you can be really happy and laughing at something, excuse me, and then five minutes later, you remember something sad that happened three years ago and you're like, oh, yeah, there was that. And then you'll be down again. So it fluctuates all day, every day. Where it becomes problematic, Katie, is when 
I don't want to get out of bed today. But I dragged myself out of bed and I dragged my feet and it was awful. But I'm not sleeping at night and I'm waking up exhausted. Like I don't get to sleep until 2 a.m. because my thoughts are racing about all these things that happened. Mm. And then when I wake up in the morning, I can't function without six cups of coffee. And I don't want to get out of bed. And when you're starting to withdraw from the things that you used to do. So there's like um, Beyond Blue have like a checklist of when you can start getting worried about how you're feeling. So if you're looking at, say, depression, you would start to have, you would have more down days than up. You are struggling to do the things that you normally had fun with. So if you were a religious runner every day and you went for that 5K run and then you started skipping days and then suddenly it's been three weeks and you haven't run, we probably have a bit of a problem. Hmm. You're, you're starting to go downhill. If you've always been really good on your diet and you know, you eat healthy foods and then suddenly you just couldn't be bothered cooking dinner and you've had takeaway every night for the last week, then, yeah, that would be an indicator that you're not in an okay space right now. Now, if you can look at that and go, oh, wait a minute, well, the reason we had takeaway was the kids were doing this this night, this happened, I had something unexpected, and you can justify all of it with things, that's okay. But if it's just I couldn't be bothered cooking so I just went to McDonald's, then you might need to start looking at what's going on. There's no real hard and fast rules around how long is not okay because it's going to depend on every person. Hmm. Because hmm. I suppose, like I say, it's it's more a individualised thing, something that, Absolutely. like you said, that are over your checklist. And because we are so good, and I suppose that's something that's in the health sector or in mental wellness or mental health, hmm. everyone's looking in a lot of times, like you said, to tick a box. Yep. Does this actually align with this? Yes, no. It's not an NA or a a thousand word explanation as to what's going on does it put in that category like what do we sort of follow yeah so look if if you feel like you can't get up every day and that going to work is a real struggle and you're finding that the joy like you don't find fun or joy in anything anymore you can jump onto web pages like beyond blue or the black dog institute and they have very quick like depression and anxiety scales so you can do it and they usually work on it in the last two weeks basis. Is it more often than not that you've felt this way? Um, so you can run that and it, it will say to you, you're actually at risk. You should probably go see your GP to get checked. So yeah. the GPs can then go over it like much more in depth how things have been going, what's going on for you. Has something happened that would actually warrant this kind of response? Um, you know, those those risk factors that put anybody at risk of becoming unwell in their whole of mind health. So things like the the loss of a loved one, the loss of a pet is huge and phenomenally underrated. Um, it could be something as simple as changing jobs and or, you know, a child moving from primary school to high school or a child moving out of home or simply a huge change to your routine. COVID was a classic example of an entire world going into fight or flight mode. 
Mm. And I did hear something the other day, Meg, with that COVID, is that they were saying about millennials and um, younger people really mm. struggling. They're, they're at more risk of struggling with the change or with what's gone on from where they first started, you know, the early 2000s or up 2010, yeah. 12, 13, 14, you know, through there to then normality or things switching in the last 12, 18 months to all of a sudden being completely different where, you know, travel restrictions, what's going on with that. Whereas people in their elderly ages or older have probably seen a bit more life experiences and a far more sort of variety on what's going on to be able to be okay with the heads and tides of life, uh, the changes, the little things that happen, the potentially how I can see things I can control, things I can't control, what's actually important, what's not important, and to be able to move from there. Definitely. And also we've, we're in a really instantaneous world now, I think, where everything's at our fingertips. And I remember talking to somebody who said, you know, there's a, there's a meme going around, Rosal Kilme, she says, I talk in memes way too much. And it says, this year I'm not going to Fiji for my holiday due to COVID. Usually I go because I'm, I don't go because I'm poor. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know. Set excuse, another excuse. Yeah, I've never done these things and I'll probably yeah. never do them, but now I can't and somebody took that choice away from me. Yes. Yeah. And and that's caused a huge amount of upheaval. Um, and, of course, our brains are still very much, like, it doesn't matter that it's been millennia since we lived in the caves. Our brains are still very much caveman brains. and mm. And so when the... I like to call it the lizard brain. When the amygdala fires up because we sense that we're at risk, all conscious, purposeful thought goes out the door. Mm. And so we just respond. And how COVID impacted everybody was suddenly we had no control over what was happening. People, you know, well outside our our little world were making decisions about what we could and couldn't do and you never knew what was coming and when you don't know what's coming then you feel at risk and that's why we've seen such a spike in diagnoses around poor mental health coming out of the back end of COVID. And that was really interesting watching people go through COVID as well and where they struggled like in our part of the world we were really lucky we had like a 12-week hard lockdown. And even that wasn't excessive, but that was all. I was at work every day. That's Mm. exactly right. Whereas we had people that we saw um, who struggled in the first two weeks, like they had their mental health as soon as they got that call that they either couldn't go to work or anything, or even people that still maintained their job, their everything the only thing that got changed was maybe they didn't go out for dinner one day a week they struggled in those first two weeks and again the struggling to get out of bed with a purpose now gone um yep. and it was that real sense of it whereas then we had people that struggled through the middle um about five to seven weeks and then we had people who struggled in the last two who had everything together the whole time and they were like on the front foot the whole time positive the whole time then it got to the last two weeks and they were just done why is yeah. it such a variance with where like with um, when this response happens It's going to depend on the person, again, because mental wellness. So one of the things I noticed significantly was the people that I would consider to be control freaks. So the ones that like to really keep on top of where their their world is, 
they were the ones that actually struggled the most with COVID from very early on because somebody had all the control over what they could and couldn't do on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of a lot of the people that are used to having a certain element of control and that was how they kept their lives under under wraps really struggled with COVID because all control was taken away from them. So they couldn't make their day-to-day choices. Um, people who might have been, so we saw a lot of spikes in the middle for families that were probably always under pressure. But when a family is only together for overnight and weekends, it's manageable. But if you're in a really, you know, negative living situation where you might not be happy with your relationship but it's manageable, to suddenly be in that space 24-7, then, yeah, you're, you're going to start struggling really fast, but it's going to take a while to lead up to it because all those things that you've been actively avoiding dealing with for however long are all going to start getting really, really pointy really, really fast. Yeah, they just become intense. Yeah, Intense, because everything's there's no just escape. Put in this boiling pot. Yeah, you can't get out. Yeah, what that's used why to we saw. The, get out. Yeah, that's why we saw those huge spikes in domestic violence in 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 those times, because those people were together all the time. There was why there would have been there was an increase in alcohol consumption. Oh, massive! Because mm. as humans, we don't like to feel those bad feelings that we were talking about before, so we we mask them. We use social activities, we use drinking, we use excess, like we do a whole lot of things to try and make ourselves feel better. Some of them are really positive and good for us and some of them aren't. They're all coping mechanisms of different sorts. In some cases, it's what's your poison. It it really is. What is your poison? And Mm. then if you consider like I I became aware just from some of the connections that I have, that sounds really bad, um, that, the, the drug trade, the illicit drug trade suffered quite significantly during a time of COVID because of lockdowns, mm. which meant people that had previously been reliant on illicit drugs to manage their mental wellness lost their crutch. So you've got mm. people coming off all sorts of stuff in oh, situations. Yeah. So it, it was a it was a boiling pot of disaster. So then what is like, what are coping mechanisms, whether where people are on the scale of mental wellness, whether they're um, just okay and they're just feeling a little bit down or whether they are dealing with it with illicit drugs, alcohol, DV, like all along that scale, what's a healthy way of dealing with it and of managing it? Because obviously it's a continual process. Like you're going to be managing this for your entire life because you're never going to stop having to work on your mental wellness. You're exactly right. And and I think when you look at it, if you're working towards a, a level of balance in your life, I mean, like you guys can, like you can't spend 24 hours a day at the gym. Mm. No. You know, and if you need three hour workouts to be able to calm down after work, then there's probably something going on at work that you need to address mm. because. All of the experts can identify that optimally for exercise to be a positive impact in your life, it's a minimum of, was it, 30 to 60 minutes three times a week. Hmm. So I think they say like 150 minutes a week. Hmm. And they found that more than that five days is optimal and seven days is actually detrimental to your health. Hmm. So it's kind of that 
that balance in all of the areas and the areas that we would consider as dimensions of wellness. And, and I'll tell you right now, I, I thought I'll be prepared. I'll do a bit of a Google. As someone that's trained in the field, there's so many different ways of looking at well-being and well and mental wellness. And I kind of had a look at a few of them. If you were just Googling it going, how do I look after myself, you would become overwhelmed so quickly. But there's four major areas that we would look at, which is your life, your mind, your social interactions, and how you look after your body. And then I break that down further into emotional wellness, financial wellness, social wellness, spiritual wellness, occupational wellness, physical wellness, intellectual wellness, and environmental wellness, which is a whole lot of wellnesses. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the thing with that is, is that if all of those areas are okay and, you know, you're, you're probably functioning between 50 and 100% on all of them, then if you're doing, say you're doing 50 in your job, your job's not brilliant, but it pays the bills and it means that financially you can get ahead, then you can offset that by increasing your social interactions sort of so you can play around with it a bit. Mm. But if you hate your job and you're not exercising and you're not stretching your brain and you're not going out with your friends and you're broke and you're sad all the time, you've got a lot to work on there. This so, is fairly bad. Where do you start? <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the thing. People go, oh, my God, there's so much. I don't know where to start. It doesn't matter where you start, to be honest, as long as you pick something. Mm. Um, I just found the most amazing book, and I it's on my bedside table because I started reading it. Uh, there's a, a psychologist from the States called um, Dr. LaPera, the holistic psychologist. Oh, and she's good. Yes, uh, Nicole LaPera. So she's on Facebook and she talks about her and she talks about her journey as a registered psychologist in the US, which is about 10 to 15 years worth of training, how to do the work. And she talked in the very early, I started reading it the other day, and she talked very early on about a woman that had been diagnosed with MS. And this woman had... She couldn't get out of bed. She was just completely dysfunctional as a person. She was, she was like, I'm never going to, what's the point? This is going to kill me. I might as well give up now. She talked about this woman and she was like, I need to do something. This is terrible. And I think it was like in somewhere between 12 months and two years, she started with every morning when she got up, she drank a glass of water. That was it. That was the only thing she had to achieve that day. And she stuck at that. And even I think three weeks in, she was finding it really, really difficult. But she stuck at it. And then after about six weeks, she then added journaling in the mornings. And it took her from that one glass of water and completely unable to function as an active human in life. She's now running marathons, which she was told she would never do. And... Nicole talks about her journey with overwhelm working as a, a psychologist in the States and, and her history and her childhood trauma. And what I, we call it childhood trauma. And so many people think 
what I like to call capital T trauma. So, you know, you're in a car accident or 9-11 or uh, bushfires, the floods. Those are capital T traumas. Then there's the little T traumas. And those are the day-to-day ones. Like, you know, that one time mum forgot to give you a hug when you were feeling sad. Or, you know, when your parent, when you were upset about something and you couldn't express it, your parents told you to stop crying. It's just those little things. And it's not from an intent, I think, that parents are crap because that's not what I'm trying to say. It's just that sometimes inadvertently our needs just aren't met by the people in our lives. And is that a and generational change, Meg? Like, no. obviously, no. The awareness of it is a generational change. So there are a lot more people now, I would say, in that millennials and younger that are starting to become more aware of the impacts. And the older generations call them all, like you can see it, you know, that they're snowflakes, they can't do anything. But they're actually making choices about looking after the whole of a person rather than I'm just going to make sure that my kid is fed and they've got everything they need and they go to a good school and they get a good job, yada, yada. They're actually looking at how they meet the emotional needs of people as well. Yeah, it steers away, I guess, from that whole um, eat a teaspoon of cement thing. Yes. They're actually looking after the person and seeing what they need so that then they can function by themselves and they're not coming back when they're, whether it's 22, 25, 30 and struggling 36. as a human being. Oh, is that the age? I've, I've, I've found mostly it's that mid-30s where they go, oh, I'm not okay with this. Thank you, viewers, for tuning in to another episode of 360 View. You can follow us on Instagram at 360view.co to stay up to date with everything we're doing and tag us in your podcast list. If you found value in today's episode, leave us a like, a review, and a five-star rating. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this episode, give it a share. If you have any questions, shoot us a DM on Instagram, and we'll answer them in the show. Thanks again, viewers, and we'll chat to you in the next one.